Well, Lord, we just, um, our hearts are filled with joy hearing Chris's testimony. Uh, in your sovereignty, you cause him to grow up uh, in the church context. And as a young boy, he heard the word of God and memorized it in his heart. And yet at the perfect time, you granted him salvation to trust in you and to have his sins forgiven. Uh, we just thank God. Thank you, Lord, that he's with us this morning uh, as a believer, as a growing man. And we just pray that you continue to build him up, that he would be a a faithful, enduring, humble man of God who will trust you in all things. Lord, we just commit this morning to you as we come before your word. Lord, grant us just the grace to be alert. Grant us the grace to be just awake in our spirits and to understand these truths and apply them diligently to our lives. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you guys don't know, um, there are four moms expecting in about two and a half, three months. And one of those moms is my wife. And as a father-to-be, I am inundated and overwhelmed with information and details about pregnancy and parenting. Um, I'm sure that the many fathers that are in this room and the fathers-to-be can uh, understand what I'm going through. I mean, you know, my time with... Uh, Newsweek and Time Magazine have diminished, while my time with American Baby and Parenting Magazine has increased. Uh, my time with Sports Center and Lakers Live is decreasing, while my time with Baby Story and Discovery Health on labor and delivery is increasing. And my time with a lot of you, my, we used to talk about doctrine and theology and about missions. Now we talk about diapers and <laughs> registry and baby cribs. Uh, my life has definitely changed. And I'm learning a lot about pregnancy, learning a lot about labor. I think more than I actually need to know. But one of the strangest things that I've learned recently is about cravings that women have during their pregnancy. Um, I'm sure you guys, most of you guys heard about these cravings. Well, my, my wife thus far, she has not had any major cravings yet. But I'm just biding the time, waiting for her to just uh, pounce on a five-pound T-bone steak and uh, just, you know, gouge that thing. But nothing significant thus far. But I've heard and read about some strange cravings about other pregnant women. I think our elder Bob's wife, Sohi. Now, I might, you know, facts are not clear on this area, but maybe you can confirm afterwards. But I heard you had cravings for jack-in-the-box burgers, cheeseburgers, tacos. Okay. Close enough. Deck in the box, though, right? Not a popular place for tacos, but obviously <laughs> she had this crazy craving for Jack in the box tacos. And as soon as Lindsay or Derek was born, the cravings went away. Another uh, lady at our church, she had a craving, she was telling us, for the cheesecake at Cheesecake Factory. So I'm like, what's the news about that? You know, <laughs> I crave that right now. I mean, who doesn't crave cheesecake? Well, one day, um, if I remember correctly, she wanted and she told her husband that I want, she wanted cheesecake. And her husband said no. And she got really sad and despondent. I don't know if she cried or not. Uh, facts are fuzzy in my mind. But she got sad and her husband disappeared. And guess what? He came back with cheesecake. And she was just, you know, eating that. And I think she cried. I'm not sure. Well... The strangest craving I've heard about, this one is actually serious and potentially dangerous. Um, you know, having cravings as a pregnant mom, it's, I hear it's the body telling you that it lacks certain nutrition, nutrition and it's the body's way of telling, telling you that you need to eat certain foods. Well, there is a potentially dangerous condition called pica. The signals from the body is miscommunicated and pregnant women with this condition have been known to crave non-foods. So they're, they're craving things like clay, dirt, laundry starch, um, baking powder, baking soda, and even frost from the freezer. There are testimonies of women who have this condition and they're eating frost off the freezer in the refrigerator. Well, though it is caused by a nutritional deficiency, um, she craves things that are not nutritious, not healthy. She's craving things that are non-foods, that are potentially dangerous. Well, I mentioned this because there is a spiritual parallel with all of us 
here this morning. All men have two thirsts, two cravings. We have a physical thirst and a spiritual thirst. So we know that a person can go 30 to 40 days without food, but not more than a few days without water. So water is an important, necessary need for our lives. And the body gives us signals that it needs water by making us thirsty. Right? It tells us you need water now, and it creates a thirst in us telling us we need water. Now, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever ex ex experienced extreme thirst? The closest I've got, gotten to is probably maybe five, six years ago, a bunch of brothers got together on a Saturday afternoon. It was 110 degrees out, but our love for basketball was so intense, we played like four games in the heat of the day, and no one brought water. I remember just being so thirsty, we finally got water. Man, it just it quenched my thirst like nothing else. Well, the Bible tells us that men are not just physical beings. That you and I, we are spiritual beings. And therefore, we require spiritual water as well. The Bible often uses the metaphor of thirst to highlight the spiritual need of man. The Bible says, like you have a physical thirst for physical water. All men have a spiritual thirst for the spiritual water of God. And that is why we read Psalm 63 this morning to begin our service. Psalm 63, David says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you and my soul thirsts for you, God. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there, where there is no water. Now David's in a, a wilderness in Judah and he's physically thirsting. But he says, greater than my physical thirst is my spiritual thirst for you, God. My soul longs for you. Another Psalm of David, Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Psalm, David sees a deer panting for water, and he uses that for his panting for God. He says, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? The final verse that I'll quote to you is Amos 8:11. Amos 8.11, the prophet Amos says, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land. Not a famine for food, not a physical famine of thirsting for water, but I will send a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. There will come a time when people will hunger and thirst for spiritual food, which is the Word of God. Well, guys, we know quickly, immediately, how to quench a physical thirst. We get thirsty, we go and buy, buy Gatorade or buy water or Coke, and we quench that thirst. But what about spiritual thirst? How can a man or a woman quench their spiritual thirst for God? Within a man's heart lies a deep thirst for God. And it it rears its, it comes out in different ways. They're either searching for purpose in life. What is the meaning of life? What is the significance of my existence? They try to seek after satisfaction. They want to be satisfied. They want to live a life of fulfillment. All men, if they are honest, will acknowledge that there is a dreadful sense in their souls that something is missing that there is a void, that there's an emptiness, that there is a lostness, a, a, an isolation that cannot be met by anything in this world. Philosopher Albert Camus confessed decades ago, as did psychologist Viktor Frankl more recently, that the search for meaning in life is the fundamental pursuit of all men. All other pursuits are secondary. But, like the pregnant women who are craving non-foods that do not nourish them nor the baby, many men attempt to quench this spiritual thirst with wrong things, with things in this world. Men, instead of going to God to be satisfied of their spiritual thirst, they seek to be quenched with things that do not satisfy, with things like worldly pleasure. 
worldly pleasure despite its promises do not satisfy. They are deceptive, they are non-substitutes for our genuine spiritual hunger. Now all our testimonies have some aspect to this, do they not? Or maybe when we're younger, for those who are young, younger in years today, maybe you think a boyfriend will fill that void. Or having a girlfriend. Or having that wife or a husband. Having that academic achievement. If you get into that school and get that degree, it'll fill that void in your life. Maybe you have thought or are thinking that money is the issue. If I just had money, if I had a nice car, a good house, a nice job, that I will be satisfied and I will find meaning, purpose, and the reason for my existence. Well, all these things are temporary and they are fleeting. Now, how do we know this? We know this through experience and the Word of God. We know this through our own experience and experience of men in the world. One experience is Boris Becker, the youngest man to ever win the Wimbledon. At 18 years old, he won the, the, the most premier tournament in all of tennis. And afterwards, he contemplated suicide. Why? His dreams had just come true. Why? Because it was so empty. It was so void of satisfaction. Someone like Kurt Cobain. We heard about this guy, lead singer of a rock band, fame all over the world. People paid thousands of dollars just to sit a hundred yards away from him, a small figure playing a guitar, and he committed suicide. We're studying in our flock groups, Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, he had money, power, fame, pleasure, all kinds of entertainment, food, and knowledge. He had hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines. At the conclusion of it all, he says, meaningless, meaningless, means vapor, empty, vanity. These things do not bring pleasure, do not bring satisfaction. G.K. Chesterton says, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain but from being weary of pleasure. I think all of us can understand that. We're in a land of luxury, land of plenty. No one here is going without. But if you're feeling pain, you can't understand that because why? I have everything I need. It's because the spiritual thirst that God has placed in all men for God himself. These things in the world do not satisfy. They are like salt water. The more you drink, the more you crave. And you will die with dehydration. And you know what? I don't know about your background, but if you're honest with yourself, and if you're not a Christian today, you know these things do not satisfy. If you're honest, you know the answer is not in this world. Life magazine several years ago had an issue devoted to Mankind's search for meaning. The whole magazine was devoted to this. It was a very fascinating issue. They interviewed celebrities and politicians and world leaders and everyday people. The most insightful interview was with a New York City cab driver named Jose Martinez. This is what he said, quote, We're here to die. Just live and die. I live driving a cab. I do some fishing, take my girl out, pay taxes, do a little reading, then I'm ready to drop dead. You've got to be strong about it. Life is a big fake. Nobody gives a damn. You're rich or you're poor. You're here and you're gone. You're like the wind. After you're gone, no one will remember you. It's too late to make it better. Everyone's fed up. You can't believe in anything anymore. People care about only one thing and that's money. We're going to destroy ourselves. The only cure for the world's illness is nuclear war. Wipe everything out and start over. We've become like cornered animals fighting for survival. Life is nothing." End quote. An honest declaration of someone who understands that things in this world do not really satisfy. And many people like Mr. Martinez have surrendered to this quote reality of life because they come to realize that the world has lied to them and nothing truly satisfies and they know it. What they don't know and what you might not know is that that spiritual thirst that you're experiencing is a thirst for God and it can only be quenched by God by living water. Our true desire and our true need in life is spiritual in nature. And God alone will satisfy. 
And you know what, guys? In today's passage, we discovered one of the most profound revelations of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, 1 through 18, we discover that Jesus Christ is the living water. He is the purpose. He is the meaning. He is the one that, that brings satisfaction and fulfillment to our souls. He is the water which men can drink and thereby never thirst again. He is the only water that will quench a man's true thirst. Here we see in this passage a woman trying in vain to satisfy her spiritual thirst through sexual activity. All her life, she's had a man around her. She had relationships with many men, five husbands and counting. She's on her sixth man. She comes to the well to draw physical water. Our Lord uses that opportunity to open her eyes to a greater need, her spiritual need. And he reveals that he is the water that she's been seeking all along and that all men need to be satisfied, to be satisfied and fulfilled. Well, if you look at that passage in John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles open, um, you will know that the dialogue between our Lord and the Samaritan woman has three stages. It's almost like a play, a grand play. And there are three stages to this dialogue. The first act deals with our Lord's gift to mankind. And that's what we'll be studying this morning. The living water, verses 5 through 18. The second stage, the second act, is verses 19 through 24. It deals with true worship. And then the third act, the closing act, is verses 25 through 43. Jesus reveals himself as the promised Messiah. And not only her, but many Samaritans come to trust in our Lord. Now, it is an amazing book, the Gospel of John. Um, there are people in the Gospel of John that you will never forget. You know, if we study through an epistle... For example, 1 Corinthians, I mean, we will forget so many things, but I would venture to guess that you will not forget Nicodemus anytime soon. And what a memorable character. And the Samaritan woman, she is someone that, that God uses to paint a vivid picture in our minds. It's a, it's a clear picture of what God will do and God's words to her and how God has saved her. And we will not soon forget her. We've seen that in just two chapters, chapters 3 and chapter 4, we've already seen two conversations of our Lord. In two back-to-back -back chapters, John records for us two lengthy dialogues. But what's interesting is, our Lord's dialogue is with two very different people. Two very different people. Nicodemus, chapter 3, was a Jew. This woman is a Samaritan. Samaritans were not Jews. They were considered by Jews as foreigners. Luke 17, 18, when out of the 10, 10 people come, lepers come back, only one came back to thank the Lord. Jesus says, the one who thanked him was a foreigner. He was a Samaritan. So even Christ himself considered Samaritans foreigners. Secondly, Nicodemus was a male, but she is female. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, the culture at that time was very, very man-centered. Very man-centered. Jewish, it was a Jewish prayer. A man would wake up every morning and pray this prayer. I thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Gentile. I was not born a slave or a woman. Right. Thomas says that every man who teaches his daughter the Torah is teaching her promiscuity. He says, let the words of the Torah be burned up and let them not be delivered to women. Rabbis were forbidden to speak to any woman in public, even to their own mothers and sisters. Samaritan women, even more so because they were considered unclean. So for Christ to talk to Samaritan women was controversial. It was almost scandalous. Uh, Nicodemus was relatively morally upright. He was a law-obeying Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. Here is this uh, Samaritan woman, and she is immoral. She is an immoral woman. Nicodemus was socially prominent. He was in the 
uh, up on high ladder of Jewish society. Remember the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel? The Samaritan woman is an, is an outcast. Nicodemus sought Jesus out to discuss spiritual issues. She's doing a mundane thing, drawing water. We see how with these two di dialogues, it encompassed a broad spectrum of humanity. In chapter 3, Christ is talking to a Jew, a law-practicing Jew, a member of the Sanhedrin, on the, on the top tier of Judaism. And the next chapter, he's talking to a social outcast, a moral woman from Samaria. By his dialogues, these two principal characters encompasses his love, the, the free call of the gospel to all men, because we all find ourselves in the midst of these two extremes. Well, let's go to the text. Let me set up the scene for you of this uh, incident. Now, Palestine, if you've ever seen a picture of uh, Israel, Palestine, it is somewhere like California. It is about 50 miles wide, 120 miles long. Um, from our, for our reference point, I went on to mapquest.com and checked, well, what's the reference point? From downtown LA to downtown San Diego is 120 miles, 124.6 miles, right? So that's about the length of Palestine from Israel from north to south. Now, Palestine at the time of Jesus was divided into three territories. The extreme north, downtown LA area, would be Galilee. There's a Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, these cities there, hometown. That's the northern part of Palestine. On the extreme south, downtown San Diego, is Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where our Lord was ministering in John chapter 3, where his disciples were baptizing. Now in the middle, I guess Irvine, right? Or Mission Viejo. Right there in the middle was a territory called Samaria. And the people living there were called Samaritans. Now, our Lord was ministering in, uh, in Judea. He was embroiled in a controversy about his ministry growing in influence and John the Baptist's ministry decreasing. This controversy was being fanned into flames by the Pharisees and the disciples of John. And in John chapter 4 verse 3, the Lord learning of this, he decided to leave Judea for the time, leave downtown San Diego, and transfer his ministry back near home. And in verse 4 it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. This is not a logistical must. This is a spiritual must. Now, going from San Diego to downtown LA, maybe there's two routes, 405 and 5. Right? Most Jews will take the 405 around Mission Viejo, around Irvine. Why? Because they consider Samaria as a pagan uh, nation, a pagan heretical people. So to avoid the Samaritans, they would go around and make a long, more difficult track, and it would take twice as long to go on the 405, but they did so because they wanted to keep themselves pure. But our Lord went up the five, right? I'm contextualizing here. <laughs> he went up the five, even though it was longer, more arduous journey through Samaria, not logistically, but because there was a spiritual need. He had a divine appointment with a woman near Jacob's well. It was necessary because it was part of the divine plan of God, a divine appointment. Well, verse 5, he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Israel is an amazing place. If you guys ever get a chance to go, you should go. Maybe in 5-10 years, we'll organize an Israel trip from Cornerstone, and we can all go together and just experience the, the Bible come alive. Israel is an amazing place because everywhere you go, something biblical happened. Right? Something historical amazing happened. It's, it's, it's crazy because it's, it's like if you almost lived in the East Coast. Right? Everywhere there's a historical mark of what took place. Like Washington slept here, right? You know, the Paul Bunyan, right? Not Paul Bunyan. Yeah, they got Paul Revere, right? I want to say that was intentional, but that wasn't. <laughs> I was similarly in Israel, 
Everywhere you go, it's a biblical, something biblical happened, something historical happened, and this area is no different. This area near the city of Sychar is a place rich in Bible history. Uh, many Jewish memories were attached to it. This is a plot of ground that where Jacob uh, bought, um, uh, which had been bought by Jacob, Genesis 33. On his deathbed, he gave it to Joseph. And Joseph, remember his bones were carried, or he came to Egypt, and he was buried in this area. So this area had many Jewish memories, and there was a well called Jacob's Well. Now, it's not recorded in Scripture, but the tradition of the Samaritans said Jacob himself dug this well for, uh, for his people. Now, this well is still there on the road to Sychar. The well is still there today, and it still has water. It's still more than 100 feet deep today. All right. Well, John provides us, as he's often done, the time of the event, verse 6. Jesus was there being wearied from his journey. Now, consider the humanity of Christ. I mean, the Gospel of John highlights the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. He is tired from the journey. It is around lunchtime. Disciples have gone to the city to get food. He's sitting by the well. And John tells us it was about the sixth hour. Now, John does is he describes all these important facts surrounding the events. Remember when Nicodemus came? He came when? At night. Because that says volumes. You don't have to tell me why he came. Or, or, or All these things surrounding Nicodemus, just him coming at night tells us volumes. Now John mentions that it's the sixth hour because the woman coming at the sixth hour tells us something. Right. Sixth hour. Jewish day began at 6 a.m. So it's noon. High noon. Palestine, noon. You don't want to be outside. It's very hot. A normal time for gathering water was early in the morning or late afternoon when it was cool. And it was a social event because it takes time to gather water. See, all these women would come, they would gather water, draw water, and they would fellowship, right? They would just talk and catch up and, and just, just spend time together. Well, here is a Samaritan woman, high noon. She's coming by herself. Why? Now, it's not in the Bible, but I, I would venture to guess because she's a social outcast. The public shame. Think about the scandal in a, in a religious culture as Palestine was. Imagine having five husbands and you're on your sixth and he is not your husband. The, the shame, the scandal it must have caused in that area, in that neighborhood. And being a public outcast, the public shame, she doesn't want to go with the women in the morning or in the afternoon. She goes by herself in the heat of the day when she knows no one will be there. She will be all by herself. She won't have to look anyone in the eye or talk to anyone. She goes to draw water and our Lord is there. Well, our Lord's request shocks this woman. Our Lord asks her in verse 7, give me a drink. Now this request shocked the woman for two reasons. First of all, she knew that Jewish men do not talk to, to Samaritan women. So she was surprised that he would even speak to her. But the greater reason for her shock is that she was a Samaritan. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And note that commentary, that explanation in the end of verse 9, that's John the Apostle explaining what's going on. He says, because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Now, why not? Why did they not associate with Samaritans? Because we know that there was bitter hatred between the Jews and Samaritans. The relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans were strained for centuries before the time of Christ. Centuries. They had a bitter and deep hatred for one another. Now, what is the reason for this? There was two reasons for their hostility. Two reasons for their bitter hatred. Race and religion. Race and religion. The Samaritans were half-Jews. They were mixed breeds by, breed by birth. A little bit of Old Testament history. I'll just give you a little bit, not to uh, lose you guys. <laughs> In 722 BC, the kingdom of Israel was separated. Ten tribes separated and went north, the northern kingdom. 
Two tribes remained in the south, the southern kingdom, Judah. In 70, 722, the king of Assyria was victorious over the northern kingdom, Israel. And as kings would do when they're victorious over a nation, he deported a large number of people out of Israel, and he, and he transported them to Assyria. At the same time, he transported people who were loyal to him to Assyria and placed him in that land in the northern kingdom. The result was only natural. The Jewish people there began to intermarry with the people from Assyria, and the people became a mixed breed. And this, of course, infuriated the strict Jews who held to a pure race. That was the one reason for their hostility. The second reason for their hostility was their religion. Their religion. The Assyrians who were transported to Israel brought with them their pagan beliefs and their rituals. They brought with them their religion. And as they intermarried with the people, with the Jewish people intermarried with the people from Assyria, they began to, of course, obviously slow to, slowly compromise. They began to adopt their beliefs, adopt their practices to Judaism. They syncretized Judaism with pagan beliefs and pagan practices. And the hostility between the Samaritans and Jews, they were cemented in the 6th century. Um, remember Ezra got a note from the king of Babylon to come back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. Um, he brought Jewish people back and they were uh, rebuilding the temple of God. The Samaritans came down and said, hey, we want to help. We're, we're part of the Jewish nation. We want to help building the temple of God again. And Ezra and Nehemiah and the people of Israel rejected their help because of their race and their religion. They declared once for all that the Samaritans were no longer a part of the Jewish people. Now, this rebuke brought on the ire, the anger of the Samaritan people. They um, built their own temple. We'll learn about this in a few weeks in Mount Gerizim, a rival temple. They had their own practices, own worship, own sacrifices. And they, they developed their own version of the Old Testament. And uh, not enough time to go through this, but I read some articles that were fascinating on what they believed. Samaritans rejected Old Testament apart from the first five books of the Old Testament. Right, the laws of Moses, the book of Moses, the first five books, they considered the word of God. They rejected the rest. And the rest of biblical history, they twisted the facts of history to esteem the Samaritans and to despise the Jewish people. For example, according to their tradition and their beliefs, Prophet Eli, or High Priest Eli, Prophet Samuel, Samuel who gave the kingship to Saul, Saul to David, David to Solomon, they're all wicked villains. It's almost like, I don't know if it's appropriate, like the bizarro world. It's opposite, right? All the villains in the Bible are heroes. All the heroes of the Bible are villains. Right? They see uh, Eli as a wicked sorcerer, Samuel as well, that led the people astray. And, and Saul, David, and Solomon were all um, um, weak, uh, sinful men who led the nation of Israel away. And they portrayed themselves Samaritans as the true Israel, true people of God, worshiping Yahweh in right practice, and write rituals. Well, of course, if you are a Jewish person, what would that you know, provoke in you? I mean, the Jews got so angry at this, the Jews viewed them as half-breed heretics. Uh, Jesus ben Sirach, a rabbi in 180 BC, referred to the Samaritans as the foolish people that dwell in Shechem, in that, that region. There is a tradition that says 300 priests and 300 rabbis once gathered in the temple court in Jerusalem to curse the Samaritans with all the curses of the law of Moses. I mean, just bitter, deep-seated hatred that lasted for centuries. So when we reach the time of our Lord, the bad feelings between Jews and Samaritans was a settled traditional thing. It was just commonly practiced, commonly accepted and understood. When the enemies of Christ called Jesus, either possessed by a demon, or remember they called him a Samaritan? 
uh, we're not sure which was a greater insult, right? Possessed by a demon or calling him a Samaritan. I mean, that's how intense the animosity was between these two groups. So, I mean, understand the significance of our Lord addressing this woman in the, by Jacob's well. It wasn't just normal conversation that we have day in and day out with people of the opposite gender. I mean, he was going, as a Jewish man, speaking to a woman from Samaria, he was going against his current culture, going against tradition, going against all accepted social norms. I believe here, it's a side note a bit, I believe it's a lesson for us in evangelism. I think Christ sets an example for us as we proclaim the gospel to all people, that our goal, our mission, is to offer the gospel, proclaim the gospel to all people. Our Lord knew her sinful past that encouraged him, prompted him to share the gospel all the more. I would say that if you or anyone, any church, is evangelizing to only a cross-section of the world, that they target evangelism, they target outreach because of culture, tradition, ethnicity, or social norms. I would say you're not following the example of Christ. At the very least, or if not, committing something that is very sinful. We are to follow the example of Christ in evangelism. Cornerstone Bible Church, as Bob shared this morning, is not our church. It's not your church. It's the Lord's church. And who does Lord, the Lord exemplify in evangelism? Proclaiming the gospel to the social elites of Nicodemus, to a woman from Samaria living in sin. Well, the Samaritan woman, hearing the request of Christ, is stunned at the Lord's request. You are a Jew. Request to speak to a woman from Samaria. But our Lord does not pursue this subject of animosity between the Jewish and Samaritan people. He's not concerned with that. He instead elevates the topic of conversation to another plane. The living water. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's saying, if you knew who, who I was, if you knew what I was able to give to you, you would be making that request of me, asking me for living water. Now, her response is interesting. Nicodemus failed to understand the concept of new birth. The Samaritan woman as well failed to understand the significance of our Lord's offer of living water. She says in verse 11, you have nothing to draw with. The well is over a hundred feet deep. How can you get this living water? She failed to understand the spiritual nature of this water. But to her credit, she recognized that Jesus was claiming to be greater than, than Jacob himself. One of the greatest fathers of the Old Testament. She understood that. That's why she says in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? Because Samaritans acknowledge the Pentateuch, the first five books. They acknowledge that Jacob was a patriarch of Judaism. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, who drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? She understood rightly that he was claiming to be greater than Jacob because he had access to a greater water for a greater benefit. Now, she rightly understood this because this was the claim of Christ throughout the Gospels. Our Jewish friends need to understand this. That his claim was his superiority to the Old Testament. He claimed to be greater than the temple, Matthew 12, 6. Greater than the temple, Matthew 12, 6. I tell you the one greater than the temple is here. He claimed to be greater than Jonah. Matthew 12, 41, the one greater than Jonah is here. In Luke 11, 31, he says, the one that is greater than Solomon is here. John 8, 51, he says he's greater than Abraham. He says, before Abraham, I am. I come before Abraham, I am greater than him. And in John 5 and Hebrews 3, 
it is declared that our Lord is worthy of greater honor than Moses himself. The lawgiver Moses, our Lord, is greater. And here in John chapter 4, he claims to be greater than Jacob because he alone has access to give this living water. He says in verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, from this, these two verses, we see six truths about the living water. If I can just go through these one by one. Six truths about this living water. First of all, this living water comes only from Christ. This living water comes only from Christ. He, he and He alone is, is the source. There is no other way to receive this living water so that you will never thirst again. He is saying that nothing in this world will quench your thirst except for Christ. Secondly, the living water keeps a man from ever thirsting again. The living water keeps a man from ever thirsting again. His inner thought, thirst is gone forever. It's quenched. It's fully satisfied. First, verse uh, 14. Whoever drinks this water I give him will never thirst again. He or she will be completely satisfied. They will no longer have that sense of void, that sense of emptiness, sense of lostness. They will no longer wish or seek for happiness in worldly things. They are satisfied completely, content with the grace of Christ. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I see this. You show me any non-Christian. They might be living in wealth, living in luxury, living in outward happiness. You give me two hours with that person, one-on-one. -on -one. Let me draw. Let me shepherd their hearts and draw what is in their hearts out. I guarantee within two hours, I will find resentment, bitterness, anger, shame, guilt, lack of peace, lack of joy. I mean, all these stars that we hear about, they're all immersed in all these addictions. Why? Because they're successful, they're rich, they're popular, but their souls are in torment because these things are not satisfying. Now, you sit me down with a true Christian for two hours, and they're going through trials. They're going through heartache. They've, they've experienced loss. You give me two, two hours to sit down and talk, and I'll draw out of them if they're true Christians, that their hearts are full of joy, full of gratitude, full of happiness, full of peace, full of contentment. They are satisfied. Their sins are forgiven. They have peace with God. They have peace with men. They have eternal life. So outwardly they're perishing, inwardly they're being renewed day by day. And that's what Christ says. Christ says, this man, whoever drinks this water will never thirst again because the man is satisfied. Thirdly, the living water is a spring of water placed in the man. The living water is a spring of water placed in the man. The well is not placed outside. The world is not placed in the world, it's not in his home, it's not in his business, it's not in the church, it is inside of him. The grace of Christ shall be inside his heart. John 7, 38, we'll go to this verse, verse um, later again, but John, Christ says, Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. Fourthly, the living water springs up and continues to spring up continually. Living water springs up and continues to spring up continually. What a beautiful image. It is the idea, the image of, of bubbling up, springing up like a fountain. It is not like a stagnant pool. It is not like a deep well. This spring bursts continually, enduring forever. A constant supply, an unfailing fountain. Fifthly, this living water springs up into eternal life. Springs up into eternal life. This living water in a man means he has eternal life. It not only quenches his thirst, it quenches his eternal thirst. 
It gives him new life, new birth into the kingdom of God. And number six, the living water is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The living water is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, put your hand on John 4, uh, verse um, 14 or 15. Turn with me to John chapter 7, a verse that I quoted just a few moments ago. And here we see our Lord, or actually John, telling us what he means by this living water. Living water refers to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, 37 through 39. Jesus said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Verse 39, By this he meant the Spirit, Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The person will have the Holy Spirit indwelling in him or her. Salvation, transformation. It is the idea of John chapter 3 being regenerate, being born again. Well, the lady here, the woman here, really is still not getting it like Nicodemus. Look at verse 14. Go back to John 4. Look at her response. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to come back here and draw water from this well again. She's not understanding the significance of our Lord's words, but not for long. Uh, our Lord's response shows his willingness to grant her this gift. He says, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. And she's like, call my husband. Well, she tells her half-truth, verse 17, I have no husband. That is a truth. She doesn't. It's a misleading answer. But our Lord continues to confront her sin. He tells her, um, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you are now with is not your husband. You're just sleeping with him. You're an adulterer. What have you just said is quite true. true. At that moment, the Samaritan woman confronts the om omniscience of Christ. The holiness of Christ. That she is not just talking to a mere man. She's talking to God in flesh who knows all things. Here is, I believe, where it hit home for her. Our Lord was willing that she would drink this living water, but He was telling her, you want to drink this water, you must turn away from the poisonous water that you are drinking from right now. She realizes here, once for all, that her soul's unquenchable thirst, she's been seeking in the wrong place. She's been seeking to escape sin, guilt, and shame, and loneliness. She's been quenching this thirst with relationships with many men. Five husbands. After all this time, she knows her thirst remains. Her immoral life didn't satisfy her. Our Lord compassionately, lovingly confronts her with sinfulness, and He offers her this living water, and He says, I will give you this living water that will endure forever, that will give you eternal life inside of you, if you will. Turn to Me. Turn away from these external things, external waters, and you will come to Me. It's a call to maybe some of you this morning. Maybe to those of you who are still seeking truth and meaning and satisfaction in this world and outside of Christ. Now, Christ had many discussions during His ministry on earth. But John chose to record this discussion. Why? To call you to Christ. To call us this morning to drink from Christ, drink this living water. Now for this woman it was sexual morality. Maybe that's, that's what it is for you. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe you think money will satisfy you. Maybe you think it's position or influence. Maybe you think material possessions in life will satisfy you. Maybe it's just pride. The, 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 
fact that you're able to dictate to you your own life, the terms of your own life, that's what you think will satisfy you. Or whatever it is, hasn't it been long enough to know that these things do not satisfy? In fact, not only do they not satisfy, they're deadly to your souls. They are deadly to your souls. I can share just one more illustration with you to show the deadliness of these things that you are seeking after. I read that in the polar regions, there's an they have an interesting way of catching wolves for fur. They place a razor-sharp knife with the blade up on the ice. On the tip of the blade, they put several drops of animal blood on the tip of the blade, and then they go away for a few days. Well, wolves, wild wolves, with a, with a heightened sense of smell, they come to this knife smelling blood. And they, and they smell that blood and this, this object, and they lick that, that, that blade, not knowing that it is sharp, and they taste blood. Now, not feeling pain, right away, they lick it a couple more times, and they taste more blood. And in a feverish pitch, they continue to lick this blade, not knowing that the blood that they're tasting now is their own blood. Within a few moments, they bleed to death. And the men come and retreat these animals in an easy way of catching wolves for fur. Well, that is what is happening to you if you're seeking pleasure, satisfaction, meaning outside of Christ. You're thinking it's harmless fun, harmless enjoyment, not realizing that this water is deadly, poisonous to your souls. All this time, God offers you living water. He says, you drink from me, you will never thirst again. It'll be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Exhort those today have not drunk have not drunk of this water to make peace with God today and humbly trust in Christ well Lord we just come before your truth and you're ama we're amazed that you would come come as a man and humble yourself and wearied from wearied from your journey you would um, speak to this woman and compassionately offer her the living water of Christ. Lord, we all sense in this room the spiritual thirst. We all sense there's more to life than what we see and hear. More, more to life than about just existing on this, on this world. That you have created a, a vacuum that can be satisfied by you and you alone. Lord, we pray that you would grant eyes to be open, hearts to be humbled and broken at your word. And those that are still toiling away for things that do not satisfy, that today will be the day of their, their salvation. They would turn to you and trust in you. We know that salvation is of the Lord, that you are a merciful God. We pray that you will show your mercy this day. Pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.